This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the API for every marketing and analytics platform. With MParticle, you don't need lots of SDKs bloating your app. It's purpose-built to help brands solve modern data challenges, and MParticle's customer list is a who's who of brands such as Airbnb, Spotify, Hulu, Postmates, and Venmo. Visit mparticle.com slash decode to learn about how mparticle can help your business simplify its app and accelerate growth. This podcast is also sponsored by GoCD, an on-premise open source continuous delivery server by ThoughtWorks. GoCD gives you complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person who will be spending the next four years in a virtual reality headset, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today, I'm seating my red chair to Recode senior transportation reporter, Johanna Buyan. Hey, Johanna, who are you interviewing today? Hey, Kara. I'm talking to U.S. Secretary of Transportation, Anthony Fox. It's his last week on the job. The new Secretary of Transportation, Elaine Chao, had her confirmation hearing last week. So we're going to talk through some of the progress he's made on things like self-driving regulations, what's next for him, and what's next for the next administration. And what he can do in just seven days, right? Or whatever. He's only got a week left. Right? Yeah, he's had, he actually has four days left at this point. And now the big job for Elaine Chow will be all kinds of things from infrastructure to where self-driving cars are going. So hopefully we'll have her on at some point. Yep. And as well as drones and FAA regulations. Well, great. I am looking forward to hearing the interviews. Take it away, Johanna. Thanks, Kara. I'm here with Secretary of Transportation, Anthony Fox. Thanks for joining me. Glad to be with you. So it is your last few days on the job. As someone who will never have the luxury of either entering or leaving federal office, I mean, what is going through your head? Well, it's a mix of emotions. It's uh, Obviously, it's been uh, a labor of love to come serve our country and to work under President Obama. It's also um, in knowing so many people, both political appointees and career professionals at the U.S. DOT, who come to work every day and bring it every single day. It's just, uh, it's been amazing to work with such a great group of people, and I'll miss that. But, you know, it's interesting when you get to the end of a president's term and you're so closely connected to that president, you know, you do feel this sense of, you know, there does need to be a changing of the guard. And, uh, you know, I've tried to do everything I can with every minute I've had, but um, when I put it down, Uh, Hopefully I can look back and say I didn't have any things I wanted to do that I didn't at least try. Can you say that? I think I can. Absolutely. And so you talk about, you know, your closeness to President Obama. Talk Mm -hmm. to me a little bit about your relationship with him. Well, uh, I first met the president in 2007. Mm -hmm. This was uh, after he was pretty much going to be running for president and we all kind of knew it. And so I met him at a, at an event at a little restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. We didn't get a long time to visit at that point in time. But uh, later he got elected, obviously. Mm-hmm. I got elected as mayor of the city of Charlotte. And then we spent a lot of time together. Right. Uh, Charlotte was uh, one of the hardest hit cities by the recession mm-hmm. because so much of its e- economy is tied to the financial sector. So um, early in my tenure as mayor, I got a group of business people to travel with me to Washington and to spend time getting briefings with different 
uh, corners of the administration on recovery plans mm -hmm. because I wanted us to be aligned. And right. that uh, started a process of just getting to know the president and the people around the president. And uh, it's been uh, a great pleasure. And so in 2007, you, you were a city council member at that time? I was a city council member. That's right. Yeah. So you were nominated to be transportation secretary in 2013. Yes. And at that time you were mayor. Yes. Before that you were in city council yes. and you've had a long legal career. Yeah. Talk to me about um, what your ambitions were uh, in politics. Did you always want to go into politics? Did you think it was going to end at mayor? Basically, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I actually started out, started out wanting to become a civil rights lawyer. And mm -hmm. uh, it just so happened that uh, by dint of when I was born and, and the time I came through law school, that civil rights lawyers were largely playing defense. Right. Um, there were a spate of voting rights cases, a spate of uh, affirmative action cases, and other cases that where uh, civil rights lawyers were really trying to hold on to gains that had been made back in the 60s and mm -hmm. 70s. Kind of feels like where we are again. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And uh, I was looking for a venue where I could I could play offense, where I could be part of introducing new issues and tackling uh, new ground, so to speak. And it took me uh, several turns, but it was finally when I started working on the House Judiciary Committee in the late 1990s, mm -hmm when I saw the legislative process and the political process and realized that you can actually raise issues, you can bring new issues to light, and you can come up with some ideas on how to solve those issues, and you're free of some of the constraints that you're under when you're practicing law. So from that experience, I knew that at some point I'd want to get engaged in the legislative process, and mm -hmm. it just so happens that I ended up at the local level. Right. And so, you know, Having spent all of about 48 hours in D.C. in my entire life, my proximity to the White House and policymaking, things like that were obviously limited. But I'm based in New York, you know, and Donald Trump, President-elect Trump has, is a couple blocks away from my office making very important personnel decisions. And so I don't know if it's just because of my proximity to it, but it seems like there is a level of transparency that we haven't seen before um, with people who have been elected between election and inauguration. Do you see that at all? Well, I can speak from my experience. Mm -hmm. um, when I was when I was uh, nominated by the president, right. that actually was actually a fairly lengthy process. I actually came up to Washington probably 10 or 11 times when I was mayor um, and had several different meetings with different people along the mm -hmm. way. Um, and... You know, that process takes a while for it took a while for folks to pick. And then once they picked, then there's a, an FBI process mm -hmm. and a lot of work that goes on to um, to ensure that there are no surprises, so to speak. And then right. um, then you get into the committee process. Once the president nominates you, then the process is turned over to the Senate mm -hmm. and the Senate had questionnaires they wanted me to fill out. Uh, I had to go through a, a confirmation hearing mm -hmm. and then wait on the vote. And that process for me was relatively short. It was um, from the nomination on April 29th, 2013 to the confirmation vote on June 26, 2013. That's about uh, two or three months, and that's not bad for confirmation. I've had people who work for me who got nominated uh, and they, they, were, they were never confirmed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of the challenge of getting good people to come into government is that when you put them through the ringer mm -hmm. of vetting and all that stuff and you never vote on them, that, that's a real problem. So right. 
That's been my experience. And so did President Obama ask you directly, you know, would you like to be the DOT secretary? He did. He mm-hmm. did. He called me. I remember it was April 26, 2013. Oh, wow. And uh, was, <laughs> yes, you know, it was the afternoon. Um, I got a call on my cell phone. No number came up, which usually means it's uh, someone who doesn't want me to know that they're calling or right. the White House. And or a so, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I, uh, I picked up the phone, and uh, you get the operator saying, hold for the president. And uh, you, you know, that's a big deal. How did you feel when they said hold for the president? Well, you know, it's uh, it's always a remarkable event when the president calls you. Right. Because the president's pretty busy and he's got plenty of things to do. And uh, for him to take the time to call me to ask me to join his cabinet and join his administration mm-hmm. uh, has been one of the highlights of my life for sure. And so what was it about your experience as mayor, you know, your legal experience that made you well-suited to be the secretary of this department? Well, I think fundamentally the president and I have some 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 parallels. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think when you get down to it, he's a, he's a student of policy and probably uh, enjoys that as much or as or more than some of the other aspects of politics. And for me, that's very much the case. I, when I was elected to city council um, as a freshman uh, city council member, one of the first jobs I had to get, get done was a, a budget for the city. Mm-hmm. And I actually worked to learn the budget and the mechanics of it and work with my colleagues to propose a city budget that was the largest uh, transportation bond in the city's history, uh, large, you know, largest increase in housing. And there are lots of things we did in that budget that made a difference in communities, but it's actually spending the time getting underneath some of the big picture topics and actually learning the mechanics of things that helps you get things done. So I think he recognized that in the work I did as mayor, Mm -hmm. where we were working much more closely, trying to get my city and the whole country out of the Great Recession. And uh, we did things in Charlotte, like uh, we reformed our workforce development system to make it more demand-driven, to get people trained up for jobs that actually exist Mm -hmm. and not, as my friend Tom Perez says, train and pray. Uh, We worked hard to um, make sure we had better after-school environments for kids. Uh, We put our after-school programs on a competitive basis. And we did a lot on transportation, extending a 10-mile light rail line, getting a streetcar started, putting an intermodal facility at our airport, getting the final piece of a beltway done in the city. And transportation was just something I gravitated towards. And um, Why is that? I gravitated towards it because it's, it's, it's what we experience every day. It's one of the most fundamental ways people experience their government. And mm-hmm. when it works well, it makes a difference. It makes our lives better. Our lives better. It makes uh, our travel time shorter. It, mm-hmm. it makes our uh, ability to get to see our loved ones easier. And when it doesn't work, it frustrates us. And so for me, I learned in city government that it's not just the throughput. It's also how much community building goes on in transportation. And uh, for example, when I went to law school, I used to use the New York subway system every day to get to school. And uh, you'd be rem- just surprised at the the wide range of people you find in the New York subway. Right. You find the wealthiest person, Mike Bloomberg. You mm-hmm. might find someone who's homeless. And there's a real power in that because, you know, part of the challenge we have in our politics today is that people are invisible from each other. Right. And 
Uh, when you have collector systems like a subway system or a public transportation system, uh, or even some of our other modes of transportation, it makes it's like a community. We create a community on an airplane. Every time an airplane takes off, there are mm-hmm. new people sitting against next to each other. And I think the more we create that closeness, the more we can uh, build the kind of country and the community we want. Right. And so now more than ever, we are seeing the effect that um, people interacting with transportation, particularly in the technology side, is having. You know, mm-hmm. you guys have now been, you know, been almost forced to deal with the tech industry, whereas a couple years back, it was just the auto industry. You were just talking to Ford, GM, Fiat, Chrysler. Now you're talking to Google, Tesla, Uber. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what has that adjustment been like for you? Well, it's been an adjustment we've embraced and we've wanted to do mm-hmm. uh, more engagement with the tech community. My own personal interactions with folks out uh, in Silicon Valley, for example, and it's not just Silicon Valley. There are other places where this is cropping up right. too. But you know, I recognize the rate of change in our space is going to be faster in the future. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've tried to really impress upon our agency is that that has implications on how we do what we do. For example, our regulatory uh, work, our rulemakings, can take something like four or five years on the normal course. Right. Well, with a technology like autonomous vehicles or drones or something like that, we could be two or three generations into a technology by the time a rule comes out. And so mm-hmm. the rule could be outdated by the time it, it happens. Right. So we're rethinking how we approach these things. And I think you've seen it through things like our autonomous vehicle guidance, mm-hmm. which was guidance. It wasn't a rulemaking. And it was uh, something that we intend to update every year because we recognize this is a fast, quick evolving area and we need to make sure that we can be flexible and nimble. Right. And so to backtrack just a little yeah. bit, um, if you could choose, yeah. was the DOT the agency that you'd want to be the head of? Oh, absolutely. There's no question. Uh, you know, I look around the room when we're in cabinet meetings, and I'm paying very cl- careful attention, of course. But when I look at uh, some of the other agencies, I feel like this is the one that I love to be coming to every day. It's mm-hmm. uh, uh, partly because it's, it, in my view, is so people-centered, but also because the things we do are long-term. Uh, when Arnie Duncan and I were in the president's cabinet together, I used to say to him, you know, Arnie, the two of us are the ones who are the long-term ones mm-hmm. because if you do your job right, we'll know in 18 years uh, what the effect of it is. Right, right. And if I do my job right over the next 50 years, we'll know. Mm-hmm. And and that's the way I think about it. Right, and so you accepted the nomination. You stepped down as mayor. Mm-hmm. What did you think the priorities were going to be? Obviously, you get briefed when you, you yeah. know, actually take office. But what did you think the priorities were going to be? What did you want them to be? I wanted transformation. Uh, I wanted, and I wanted this period of time to be consequential mm-hmm. for our transportation system. And that meant, in part, fixing some things that had not been uh, fixed. Like, okay. for example, uh, the need for a long-term surface transportation bill. Mm-hmm. We've been almost 10 years without one. Right. And... Uh, they're a graveyard of people who've pushed for them, but um, we were actually successful in being able to get it done. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I also felt feel like we were at an inflection point with technology. Um, you've mentioned it already, but you know, there's sort of the so-called old world of transportation, and then there's this brave new world we're going right. into where there's a wave of technology waiting to come in and, and maybe make our lives easier and maybe help us be safer. Mm-hmm. But um, we can only capture that if we're 
thinking about it beforehand. Mm -hmm. And that's why we've sort of turned the agency inward to say, okay, what kind of competencies do we need as an agency to manage increased artificial intelligence, for example? Mm -hmm. Are there different different disciplines that we need to bring into the agency to deal with that? Is there a different approach we need to take? Mm -hmm. Is rulemaking going to be the way we do it, or is it going to be through guidance and creating frameworks? And I think we've struck a pretty good balance in Mm -hmm. terms of um, laying a foundation. Obviously, there are more pillars to be laid on top of what we've done, but I'm very proud of what we've done. But so we can talk a little bit more about that. I definitely want to get into that. But, you know, going into it, did you think that that was going to be a focus of yours? I did. And I I thought technology certainly was going to be an area that I'd focus on. I also thought that um, creating more community connections would be a place I would spend some time on, too. Uh, Having grown up in Charlotte on the other side of the track, so to speak, I brought a perspective of someone who had grown up on the other side of the tracks, and I knew what those tracks meant Mm -hmm. to me when I was growing up, and I wanted to create a society where we had fewer uh, infrastructure projects that that substituted as uh, lines of demarcation between haves and have-nots and people who were in and people who were out. And so what have you done on that that front? On that front, um, we've done several things. You have to realize that there's no way to have a sweeping impact on this kind of separation we've created for ourselves in one action. It's Mm -hmm. a lot of little actions. It's a lot of projects that are happening on the ground and changing the mindset of both the planners and the people who are part of the public engagement process. So we've done uh, things like a pilot where we went to cities, seven cities that were the hardest for someone who's poor to Mm -hmm. reach into the middle class we asked the mayors of those cities, cities like Baltimore, Atlanta, uh, my hometown, Charlotte, uh, Baton Rouge, Indianapolis, uh, Phoenix. And we went to those mayors and we said, look, tell us a, you know, if you've got a project that you think will make a difference in terms of mobility. Mm-hmm. And Indianapolis picked a bus rapid transit project. Mm-hmm. Um, Baton Rouge picked a streetcar project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each city had a project they wanted to do. And we're helping those projects happen. Right. And those are projects that usually are the last one to get done but they've been moved to the top of the page both by the cities and by us. And so we're working to get those done. And the idea behind that is that these you know, new means of transportation will give people access yeah. to economic opportunity and things like that. Yeah, it, the gaps in different communities are going to be different. Mm-hmm. You know, um, If you're out in a rural part of the country and you're poor, that's a different transportation problem than if you're in uh, an inner city, mm-hmm. but the challenge is making sure that the uh, the conditions are top of mind for those decision makers, right. both at the local level and th- at the state level. And so, speaking of being, you know, living on the other side of the tracks, high sp- the high-speed rail program was also <laughs> a focal point for you. Yeah. You know, just from where I'm sitting, it's hard to kind of see the progress. Um, Talk to me a little bit about where it is today and what the what the next couple of years hold for it. Well, a lot of progress has been made on high-speed rail. Um, I'll talk about the California project, mm-hmm. but we also have two other projects that are at various stages today. Right. In California, um, you know, as with many big projects, it's not been without controversy and without lawsuits. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is, is that uh, the funding is in place. Uh, they're making progress, and they're going to start turning dirt on actually, they actually started turning dirt on the project. I was out there just a few months ago. But what, it's, what um, is the controversy around that? Well, there were some um, uh, land use uh, disputes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some disputes about the propriety of the state even doing the project. Mm-hmm. But 
but those issues have largely been resolved, and so they're moving forward with it. But a project of that magnitude is going to take years and years to get done. And right. so um, it's like a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. So every day they're turning dirt and starting to put facilities in place uh, is the day we get closer to seeing the service happen. But you look at a place like Florida, uh, where a private group is working to build high-speed rail between Orlando and Miami. Mm-hmm. Uh, another big project, it's not without challenges, but it's moving forward. And in Texas, of all places, the area between Dallas and Houston, mm-hmm. uh, one of the most congested highways in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, they're looking at high-speed rail there too, and they're, they're pretty early in the process. But the point I'm making is that the demand for high-speed rail is there, mm-hmm. and we are actually making progress in not just one place, but in three places across the country. And I think um, over the long haul, we're going to see a much more interconnected high-speed rail system. And so what do you think the next four years will hold for that program? Well, uh, California has to continue making progress. Mm-hmm. Um, Dallas, Houston will eventually have to make a fish or cut bait decision on, on moving forward mm-hmm. with it. I think there's a lot of energy in the region to do it. And uh, Florida is moving, uh, it's moving forward. So we will have a service up and going within the next four years, I'm sure. And the question is just, uh, does that start a brush fire that moves across the country to demand more high-speed rail? So with the introduction of things like Hyperloop, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, is high-speed rail still the most cost-effective, efficient means of long-distance travel? Well, it's the technology we've known and, and have uh, have systems of regulation around that we mm-hmm. understand. I've been very, uh, very open to things like Hyperloop, um, but Hyperloop's going to have to have a, a, a regulatory structure built yeah. around it. And uh, I'm not sure. In fact, I'm pretty sure the Federal Railroad Administration's current regulations uh, would be like putting a square peg in a round hole um, for Hyperloop. Right. So uh, the technology, the science behind it is very sound, um, but it's one of those is another one of those examples of the technology may be there before the government is. And so that's why we have to continue keeping our ear to the ground and move uh, as quickly as we can to stay ahead of uh, some of these technological changes. So when, when Elon Musk put this paper out, did you look at that and were like, I really want to be the one who regulates that? Or you're like, please, God, no, like, let this not happen during my tenure. <laughs> it's um, literally a pipe that is shooting a human being in a pod from city to city. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've had an opportunity to talk to, to Elon Musk about the idea. And when high-speed rail was proposed in California, this is an alternative that he developed in his head, and it's uh, probably the biggest difference between, um, you know, aside from the technological differences, right. is that in his mind this would be a way of utilizing existing right-of-way and not having to do as much acquisition of right-of-way, which mm-hmm. is a huge portion yeah. of the cost of doing new uh, transportation facilities. So um, will it happen someplace? Absolutely. I'm sure it will. Um, not even sure it's going to happen first in the U.S., to mm-hmm. be honest. But but I think there will be some, some proof points out there to show that Hyperloop is a real thing. And um, whether it's passengers first or freight first, probably I would think probably more freight yeah. uh, will move first on Hyperloop. So how do you even go about regulating something like that? Well, you need Congress's help because um, we have, you know, we have sort of a, a, a Simon Says 
approach to technology in mm-hmm. the U.S. and transportation usually, which is uh, for something like that, which is uh, a complete system that is brand new. You know, mm-hmm. it's very different than the autonomous car. We actually have uh, authority to regulate automobiles, right, right. and so we can adjust uh, to some extent. But with something that's brand new like this, Congress will have to lay out some uh, some ground rules for us to play within before we can really really jump into it with two feet. And so you mentioned that it might not happen in the U.S. first. And, and one of the companies, Hyperloop One, has mm-hmm. partnerships or has struck up contracts with mm-hmm. places like Dubai, for example. Is this uh, an aspect of transportation infrastructure that the U.S. is likely to compete with other countries on? You know, if another country gets it first, is this something that the government will be like, we need to get this? In- I think, you know, getting the service is different than getting the, uh, generating the ideas mm-hmm. and generating the, uh, intellectual capital that gets put into putting something like that in place. And, you know, we in the U.S., one of our one of our greatest virtues and one of the biggest challenges for us is that when new transportation technology is introduced, something mm-hmm. like Hyperloop, and say, you know, we want to be first, uh, a lot of times what we say is we want to be safest. And I think that's a good thing for us. It doesn't always make us a fast mover, but it certainly helps us when we when we say to an individual who's using that service or to a company that's moving things through that service, we can say with a straight face that we've thought about the safety aspects of it. And that's that's the number one thing. Gotcha. So would you ever take Hyperloop? Uh, I hope one day that I do. I do. I'm not going to go to the moon, but uh, <laughs> but Hyperloop I might do. I'm actually, I would much rather go to the moon than take Hyperloop. Would you? Because <laughs> if you're just going from L.A. to San Francisco, the risk is not worth it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Okay, That's great. Funny. So um, when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about the privatization of transportation okay. infrastructure. But we're going to take a quick break now. Here's Kara Swisher with a word from our sponsor. We're about to enter an era where home robots are part of our daily lives. And I just met one of those robots. Her name is Curry. That's spelled K-U-R-I. Curry is a home robot companion, and I had a chance to meet the team that made her down in Silicon Valley. Curry is an adorable little robot that bleeps and runs around and makes you feel good about yourself, kind of. It's a really lovely little thing. It feels a little bit like R2-D2 if you mixed it with a teddy bear. Curry is not just a robot. She'll be an interactive member of your household. She moves around on her own and knows how to avoid obstacles and stairs. She communicates through expressive eyes and head gestures. She'll greet you when you get home. And she understands when you talk to her and responds back in her own language of chirps. When you're not home, Curry can be your eyes and ears like a house sitter. Right from your phone, you can see what's happening. She will check on your kids or your pets or anyone you want to stalk. And if Curry hears a loud noise, she'll go to investigate. Curry is available for pre-order right now at heycurry.com. That's H-E-Y-K-U-R-I dot com. Go to heycurry.com today. I'd also like to tell you about Code Media, an exclusive two-day event that's coming up in February. And I'm here with Recode's senior media editor and podcaster extraordinaire on Recode Media, Peter Kafka. How you doing? That is a very nice introduction. I know. I'm very nice. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> Be silent. So Code Media is February 13th and 14th at the Ritz-Carlton in Dana Point, California. Peter, tell us a little bit about the event. Who are we going to talk to? We're going to find the most interesting, the most important, and the most brainy people in tech and so media. So most. Okay. Most. All right. If you're least, you can't be on stage. No. So there's a guy, Ben Thompson. He's sort of a self-made business, media business analyst, super smart. Everyone in media and tech follows him. He's in Taiwan. He runs a newsletter called Strategic. Love it. Terrible Love that name. Newsletter. Super smart. 
He's wicked smart. He's coming in from Taiwan to speak to us. Wow. Which is super cool. I've wanted to do this for a couple of years, so he'll be joining us. Well, I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope to see some of our listeners there. Code Media is February 13th and 14th in Dana Point, California. For all the details and to get your ticket, visit recode.net slash events. Now back to you, Johanna. So thanks, Kara. I'm back with Secretary of Transportation, Anthony Fox. So are you ready for people to call you by your first name? Yeah, I am. You can start today. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a nickname? Yeah. I will no. be calling you by your nickname if you tell me. Is that right? <laughs> um, you know, some people call me just by my last name, Fox. It's a pretty good yeah. last name. My last yeah. name's Booyah, so yeah. I like I being like called by too. my last name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we sound like a really cool crime-fighting <laughs> duo. Absolutely. Fox and Absolutely. Booyah. Absolutely. Um, okay, so let's talk about public-private partnerships. Sure. I know that's often talked about in the context of bridge building and highway building, mm-hmm. but we're seeing increasingly a lot of local governments partnering with companies like Uber mm-hmm. to sort of fill in the gaps of public transit. Mm-hmm. You know, the advantages, oh, uh, Elaine Chow actually, her, during her confirmation hearing, you know, she talked a lot about public-private partnerships, really mm-hmm. said, I mean, it seems like she kind of went on and on about the benefits of it. And the benefits are are pretty obvious. You mm-hmm. know, it's a cost-effective way to fill in the gaps that public funding and, and federal funding can't fill. But at the same time, there are, of course, inherent disadvantages. I mean, where do we draw the line so that public agencies, civilians, are not b- becoming over-reliant on private companies whose ultimate driving factor are, is obviously, you know, the business need. They're making money. It's a really good question. And as a local uh, official for many years, I was part of a lot of public-private partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we could actually get infrastructure paid for by the private sector right. uh, using devices like tax increment financing and other uh, transit-oriented development type of uh, uh, strategies. Look, I, I think if you took the entire infrastructure deficit and you said, okay, can we put some of the burden of getting that deficit closed into public-private partnerships? Mm-hmm. The answer is absolutely you can, um, and I believe that. Um, I don't know. I don't actually believe it's 100%, though. I think it's probably more like 10 to 20%. But if you could get the private sector to foot the bill for 10 to 20% of the overall gap, that's more than you would have had otherwise. And right. so um, what we've done at the department is we've tried to build the infrastructure to accomplish that using mm-hmm. the consolidation of our uh, innovative credit programs, uh, creating a new bureau that's a one-stop shop for projects. Mm-hmm. It used to be that if you wanted to do a, a, a rail loan uh, program we call RIF, you had to call the Federal Railroad Administration. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to use our TIFIA program, you, call, you had to call the Federal Highway Administration. And if you wanted to use our um, our, our bond programs, mm-hmm. you had to call yet a different office. And so you kind of had to know what you wanted and, and you'd have to know who to call. Mm-hmm. And what we've done is we've created one place. So now private sector uh, stakeholders, our public sector stakeholders can call us up and they can say, here's the project I want to do. Right. I want to talk to you about which of your programs make the most sense for this project. And that's right. a much more sensible, customer-friendly way to do it. So I don't doubt that there is opportunity for three P's to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think it's going to be a hundred percent strategy. And so, I mean, where, how do you protect against, for example, for Uber and and Lyft's case, there have been a couple studies about discriminatory practices on the platform. Mm-hmm. And so, if local governments are now subsidizing Uber in, in place of public transit, I mean, how do you 
prevent against that kind of uh, inhibiting access to transportation? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, because that set of decisions happens more at the state and local level, we don't tend to get involved Mm -hmm. in the service provision part of it. Although we are now uh, launching a pilot called Mobility on Demand, where we are we're actually experimenting with our stakeholders at the local level mm-hmm. to see what co- partnering with ride sharing companies can do to cover last mile challenges. But when we partner, the partners, all the folks that are involved in the pilot have to follow our rules. Right. So they, they can't discriminate. That would not be an appropriate use of federal money. So I think the more there is public investment in some of these partnerships, right. Um, you're going to see the the regulatory strings come with it. And, you know, there may be situations where some of the ride-sharing services decide not to partner because of that. Mm -hmm. But um, some of these things like the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, Title VI, uh, these are important um, uh, things to ensure fairness. Right. And so how does this affect the, I mean, you talked a lot about public-private partnerships just even during your time um, as the DOT secretary. How does this affect the the tax base and the revenue for either local governments or the federal government? Yeah. Well, the traditional model for for transportation is the public buys it and the public owns it. And when you start talking about public-private partnerships, as you've already said, that means that we're now financing. We're now borrowing money somehow Mm -hmm. from the private sector to get a public asset in place. Right. And uh, I think where the shock value to the public comes in is when they realize that someone's making money on what they believe to be a public asset. Mm -hmm. Now, the reality that we are now facing is that our infrastructure deficit is so substantial that the public purse has fallen so far behind that we're now trying to play catch up. Mm -hmm. And so the other side of it, if you're just a general member of the public is, one has to ask, would I get this asset just using public dollars and in you know in many public private partnerships the answer is no Mm -hmm. so that's i think the trade-off we have to get comfortable with to make these more prominent in our in our culture Mm -hmm. but um i think there's room i just you know again i think it's probably more like 10 to 20 percent of the infrastructure deficit not 100 percent right and so Increasing access to transportation, we talked about this a little bit already, but that was a focal point for you. You've written yeah. columns about it, and, and a lot of it comes from your background. Mm-hmm. Why was that something that you thought that you needed to push forward? You know, it probably gets back to my own life story and uh, growing up in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Again, not in what is the most privileged part of the city, being uh, sent to schools under a busing order following the Swan v. Board of Education case, hmm. being the, one of the first members of my family to go to integrated schools and to live at that time in my life with the expectation that we really are all equal, we really are the same, and uh, the differences between us don't matter as much as the similarities. And then you fast forward into the world we live in where there's so much conversation about urban-rural divides and racial right. uh, issues and so forth. You know, I think... We have an obligation as a transportation community to help bring people together. There's a reason why people talk about bridging divides. They're using transportation metaphors Mm -hmm. to explain what, in fact, we can do on the ground and bring people closer together. So to me, um, what I've tried to preach at the department is that we we don't just have engineers 
at the Department of Transportation. A lot of people have engineering training, mm-hmm. but they're community builders. They're building community with every single thing they do. And it's not just us. It's the po- folks at the state level and the local level who are doing a lot of the planning work as well. And if we plan for a community that's whole, mm-hmm. that, that brings everyone to the table and creates access points for everybody, uh, and maybe even put in assets in communities that have historically been underserved to help lift them up a little bit. Right. That we're actually bringing the country together in ways that we've needed to for a long time. Is there is there a means to sort of incentivize trans- private transportation companies to also work toward that mission? There probably is. Um, but, you know, one of the challenges we have in terms of thinking about things this way is that the decision making is so fractured in transportation. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to a place like Singapore and it's a federal system. Yeah. Uh, at France, a federal system. Mm-hmm. So they decide they want to build a train, they build a train, they want to build a highway, they build a highway. They, you know, a lot of the facilities, the hard facilities are built federally. In mm-hmm. our system, they're really built at the state and local level. And a lot of the decision making around service provision is is happening at the local level as well. So in other words, I don't have the ability to change the the approach that the service providers right, you can't are say doing. Uber exactly. Be right. Because it's it's more of a state and local mm-hmm. issue. So there's a thesis, there's a hypothesis about self driving cars, which is that it'll democratize access to transportation. Mm-hmm. Do you buy that? You know, I think it's possible. Uh, I don't think it will happen as an absolute eventuality, I think it'll happen because people intend for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll give you an example um, with the Smart City Challenge. That for us was a big deal. We we put forty million dollars of our money right. in place. We uh, attracted, I think, about ninety million additional money from foundations and so forth. And it was probably the most sought after competition our department's ever done because mm-hmm. there was only one winner. Usually, there are a bunch of winners in our competitions. But we could have just made that about technology. We could right. have just said, you know, show us the coolest stuff you can put on the ground and we'll pick who, who, who wins. But we actually went for more than that. We actually said, you know, as part of this exercise, we want our communities to think about the underserved, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and what are you going to do to ensure their access to the same technology? And I actually think that's a bit of a model that needs to be followed both publicly and privately. Because when we pose the question, people will think about it and they'll come up with some very good answers. Mm -hmm. And we saw some good answers. And just for those who don't know, the winner of the Smart City competition was Columbus, Ohio. That's correct. Yeah, like for example, um, what if you don't have a bank account Mm -hmm. or a a, a mobile phone to access an app? The cities came up with an idea of creating kiosks and putting them in places Mm -hmm. that are uh, underserved so that folks can use cash and they can access the technology without having to have a mobile phone or having to have a bank account. Mm -hmm. That's a fundamental thing. But, you know, if you don't think about it first, you don't solve for it. And that's I think that's the biggest challenge we face is that there are a lot of great ideas out in the world. But if they if they don't translate into access points mm-hmm. for people, then they don't exist. Right. And it's interesting you mentioned that um, a lot of what disability advocates are, are concerned about with the um, pushing forward of guidelines for self-driving cars is that a lot of these companies aren't actually thinking about ways to create vehicles that fit wheelchairs, for mm-hmm. example, from the get-go, mm-hmm. which often means that they're left out in the process. Mm-hmm. 
in the islands, I don't know if you mentioned anything about wheelchair accessibility, but I mean, what is the DOT's responsibility with that? Well, you know, when we did the guidelines, what we were trying to do is to lay out a very broad framework for the technology itself, mm-hmm. um, and, and me- meaning where do we as a federal government expect to play our role, and what role will we play? Will we play an assistive role? Will mm-hmm. we play an enforcing role? Where do we think states belong, and where do we think the private sector bears more responsibility? And right. so it's sort of a broad framework. To fill in some of the gaps, the second phase of what we're doing is we're launching a um, a federal advisory committee on automation, right. and that group is going to help us wrestle with, with more specific questions like that. And mm-hmm. we, we have representation from the disability community on that. Right. And so is that a, a nonprofit group? What is what is the... It's, uh, it's actually a, a, a committee that will report to the secretary okay. and uh, provide ongoing uh, feedback on second and third stage questions that our first guidance wasn't able to get to. Interesting. And so is that something that you have discussed with the incoming DOT? No, um, it you know it's something that we've been working on for quite quite some time, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I I think out of respect for the for the confirmation process, mm-hmm. it probably wouldn't be appropriate for us to have that conversation right. until a later stage. And so, now that you have established this committee, mm-hmm. is it you know definitely going to be a part of the process? Do they have a choice of saying, oh well, actually we don't want it? Well, you know, look, every administration can do. Lots of things, but I, you know, I think there's everything I know about um, the present and the future is that mm-hmm. we have many questions that need to be answered: mm-hmm. questions about ethics, questions about privacy, questions about cybersecurity, questions right. about uh, folks with disabilities, and those are evergreen questions. We need mm-hmm. to answer them. So, uh, I think there's a strong case for for what we've put together, and uh, I'm confident uh, about its uh, its future and its stickiness. Right. And so in your last few months as secretary, you push forward federal automated vehicle guidelines. Did you go into your term as DOT secretary convinced that the technology was ready to be regulated? No, I wouldn't say that. I I would say that that I was curious about how ready we were for rapid technological change in Mm -hmm. general. And I was also looking for ways to enhance safety and the use of technology. So as we were going through and scanning the waterfront, what I realized was that there was a lot of technology out there that was going to be coming our way. And one day we would have someone walk into our doors and say, hey, I've got an autonomous car. Right. You know, I need your stamp of approval or whatever. Who was that person? Well, I don't know who it would be, (laughs) but, but whoever it was, what kind of standard would we apply to that? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of requirements would we apply to that? You know, we have um, federal motor vehicle guidance safety standards yeah. that basically lay out the basic fundamentals of a car, mm-hmm. and and you're supposed to adhere to that. Mm-hmm. So a car is supposed to have a brake pad that a human foot can touch. Mm-hmm. Well, what if a car gets presented to us that doesn't have a brake pad that a human being can touch? Right. You know, so there are all kinds of questions that we have not thought of. We had not thought about at that time. And uh, we now have a framework. So now people know how the federal government's going to be thinking about this. Mm-hmm. And we don't have every little T crossed and I dotted, but people have a have a very good sense of where we think we're going to regulate, where we think we're going to be applying guidance, mm-hmm. where we think we're going to be assisting the figuring things out, like right. in privacy and uh, cybersecurity. 
So there's a lot of lot of detail to be filled in, but I think the the outline is uh, is pretty solid. Was there something that happened that made you say, "Now we really need to start thinking about self driving cars"? I, I you know I just call it spidey sense. I, I mean it's just <laughs> my it was my sense that we were reaching an inflection point, and I you know you think you can look back at my my life in politics and you can see that I don't think in the present tense. Mm -hmm. I think in like the future tense. And I'm always thinking about how do we get the country or in the case of being mayor, my city ready for what's coming. And this is an example of uh, me and and we as a department really trying to get ready for uh, an avalanche of change that I don't think we were ready for three years ago, but I do think we're going to be ready for it when it happens. And so obviously the jurisdiction of the DOT is limited in some regards, especially related to labor, for example. Um, However, things like the self-driving guidelines, of course, have labor implications. And so you guys today announced that you are appointing the head of the Transportation Trade Department to your advisory committee on autonomous vehicles. Talk to me a little bit about what you think uh, his responsibility will be, what the DOT's responsibility is in terms of labor. Well, as I say, this this automation federal advisory committee's job is to help us think ahead. Mm-hmm. And it's very close to what I just said. I mean, I, I you know I can think about problems we may face in the next ten or fifteen years, but someone who is working in uh, the labor community will have specific thoughts about that. Someone right. who's uh, an academic who's been studying the ethics of you know, liability laws, you know, we'll have a a specific view of that. We've tried to bring the controversies under the tent Mm -hmm. so that they can be discussed openly and hopefully resolved to the best extent we can and reflected in how the federal government moves forward. And so do you think that the DOT has some sort of responsibility toward the people whose jobs are going to be automated as a result of these regulations? I absolutely think that across the board, government needs to think about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're taking our first stab at trying to understand the dimensions of potential labor market disruption. Right. But uh, that's not the only challenge that's out there. Uh, again, we have cyber challenges, mm-hmm. privacy challenges, uh, ethical challenges. Uh, you know, people talk about, well, what if the car has to choose between saving the occupants and saving somebody outside of the car? And, um, you know, let's think about that now. Let's not wait until we have a, a situation in front of us. Right. So we're going to take another quick break now. When we come back, we'll talk more about the new administration. Here's Kara Swisher with another word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the operating system for mobile marketing and analytics tools. Success as a content or commerce company these days requires you to have a great mobile experience, but the operational complexity is enormous. Legacy web solutions don't work for mobile, and native tools require lengthy integrations, which means a lot of overhead risk and complexity. That's why you need modern data infrastructure built for the mobile era where APIs are becoming the primary storefront for brands. MParticle makes it simple to collect data once and integrate all the tools required to run your mobile business successfully at scale. To learn more, visit mparticle.com decode. This podcast is also brought to you by GoCD, the on-premise open source continuous delivery server created by ThoughtWorks. With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for multiple teams with ease. And GoCD's value stream map lets you track the change from commit to deploy at a glance. GoCD's real power is in the visibility it provides over your end-to-end workflow, so you get complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. 
Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. Now back to Johanna. Thanks, Kara. I'm back with Secretary of Transportation Anthony Fox, who was nice enough to spend an hour of his last few days at the, on the job with us. So I want to go back to the self-driving regulations a little bit. Like we talked about before, you know, you had to do a little bit of an adjustment because now you're not just dealing with the auto industry, you're also dealing with the tech industry. Mm-hmm. On the side of the tech companies, do you feel like there was a little bit of a learning curve for them, you know, learning how to deal with a government agency for one, but specifically the DOT? Yeah, I, I think there has been. I think there will continue to be. Um, they're getting a little more sophisticated, but for the most part, and I'm being very grossly general here, they're used to just creating stuff. And uh, in many areas, like in just creating apps, Mm -hmm. you can dream something up at nine o'clock and be working on it at 10 o'clock and you might have a a prototype by three o'clock. And so the way, the the, the rate of uh, activity is just really, really fast. Right. And there's generally speaking, very little patience for the processes of government. Yeah. Um, so I think they're starting to figure out that there are some things, uh, you know, with 50 years of experience of regulating automobiles that we we know. And um, yeah, and it's a and, very and, hard thing yeah, for them. To yeah. <laughs> and uh, and there are things that they they know or believe that that we don't know. And I think, you know, part of the the framework that we laid out in the guidance was basically um you know, we're going to be educating each other a little bit and they're going to push us a little bit and we're going mm-hmm. to push them a little bit. And, you know, the goal for us is to ensure that we are raising the bar on safety, that we're creating a more safe environment for people at all times. And right. I think there's a lot of promise. The tendency for Silicon Valley companies to sort of move fast, break mm-hmm. things, seek forgiveness. I just mixed five different phrases, but that is very much Silicon Valley. You're very good at that. <laughs> Um, did that contribute at all to the rate at which you decided to push forward these guidelines? I, I do think there's a culture difference. You know, you, when you deal with them, some of the conventional uh, manufacturers of automobiles, they're very used to the process that we, right. we undertake. And, you know, they're they're patient, if you will, with the things we need to do and, and want to do to ensure safety. And they're very, you know, sophisticated in how to deal, how to interface with us. Mm-hmm. It's different when you're dealing with an entirely new set of players who are used to moving very quickly. And uh, I do recognize that as a reality and probably did early in the the process here. But I I actually think the thing that that really convinced me we needed to make a move was in 2014 when we released our vehicle-to-vehicle guidance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, our our intention to get a vehicle-to-vehicle rule put out before the administration has ended, which we've done. Mm -hmm. Some of the reaction I got to that was, that's cool that you're doing that, but there's going to be some other technology that's going to come up potentially faster than vehicle to vehicle. And that was a lot of the community that's been working on the autonomous car. That's so interesting that you mentioned that because I was actually, I was um, interviewing a couple of experts in the industry and I'd asked them about V2V communications and whether that was sort of a necessary aspect of the autonomous mm-hmm. system. And for them, they were like, it would be great to have, but it's more of a redundancy. So it's interesting to me that you, the government decided to focus on that. Why is that? Well, my fear was 
that we were unintentionally putting our finger on the scale and saying one technology is better than the other one. Mm -hmm. Because oh, we're ready for V to V. To v. Yeah. We don't know much about the autonomous vehicle. So what I really was trying to do was to level the playing field right. and let, let the best technology sort of evolve. And mm -hmm. our thinking right now is actually that they will, um, they will converge and you'll have autonomous cars that have vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle right. connectivity, but that may be some time off. So the new administration is coming in in a couple mm -hmm. of days. Are you, you've met with Elaine Chow already, uh, Talk to her. Yeah. yeah. And so if you were the one writing the book that she gets on her first day, mm -hmm. you know, what would the top five priorities for you be? Mm. Well, first of all, I think it's really important for me to say that, uh, you know, giving the next secretary advice is probably not where I want to be. Mm -hmm. I, she's a pro. She's uh, She's been at the department before. She served as the deputy secretary. She's uh, run a big agency. She ran the labor department in the last uh, yeah. Bush administration. So um, she'll go her own way and, and have her own priorities. I think the way that I could answer, kind of answer your question is to say, if I had more time, what would I want to mm -hmm. be doing? And, you know, fleshing out some of this technolo technology stuff around autonomous vehicles and drones would certainly be a high priority for me. Uh, I'd say that we'd also uh, want to continue to broaden the work on the opportunity front. We've done some things to teach the stakeholders out there how to be more context sensitive and more community minded in how mm -hmm. we build transportation, but we still have some ways to go. And, um, you know, I do think it'll continue, but hopefully as robustly or more, uh, you know, I think we would want to start building some, uh, some greater support for, for some of the rail projects around the country, not just high speed rail, mm -hmm. but you know, our demographics show us that, Areas out in the west and the southeast of the of the U.S. are going to be the fastest growing areas of the country over mm -hmm. the next 30 years. And those happen to be areas that are probably least prepared for that kind of growth. Mm -hmm. And so when you see a city like Los Angeles passing a major measure to accelerate their transit plan, that's a huge deal because their growth is going to continue just right. exploding and they're getting ready for it. But far too few communities in these fast growing areas are really taking aggressive steps. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd love to see um, not only the project in California, but I'd love to see the Northeast corridor extended down into the Southeast to Atlanta, perhaps to Birmingham, because that inner city passenger rail system will be for the Southeast, right. what it has been for the Northeast as this population explosion continues, mm -hmm. in addition to, you know, more transit right, and right. More, more mobility choices for people. So Trump has this trillion dollar infrastructure plan that mm -hmm. he wants to make a priority for his administration. Obviously, that'll take up a lot of the DOT's focus as well. How realistic do you think it is that they will get that funding for that infrastructure plan? I don't know. I, I haven't seen the proposal it's a funny thing, though, having the battle scars of the, the, the FAST Act yeah. on, on, my, uh, on my back. A lot of the conversation, I'd say 95% of it, if history is to be any indication, is going to be about how big it is and how it gets paid for. Mm -hmm. And actually, those decisions actually are made by committees that aren't on the side of deciding how the money actually gets spent. Mm -hmm. So... 
you go to the Ways and Means Committee, committee and you go to the Senate Finance Committee to figure out how to raise the dollars. Right. And I think that's where most of the debate will happen. The problem is, as I was saying earlier today, you could put $5 trillion into our infrastructure system. But if we're not paying for the right things, we're going to be challenged. And I think our system today is very much a supply-side system. Mm-hmm. We kind of say that we need uh, and we pay for 80, 80 for every dollar in the highway trust fund, 80 cents is going to roads and 20 cents is going to transit. Well, there's some areas of the country that really would want to flip that. And there are other areas of the country that would say, we'd just rather have 100% roads and they'd be right. Right. So, you know, we don't have as flexible a system as I think we need to respond to our challenges, but the policy discussion always kind of comes at the end and without a whole lot of thought. And so what I've been trying to urge the transportation community is to pay as much attention to the policy as they do to the the funding. Because um, if we don't get this right, we're going to have a lot of infrastructure, but it may that's not be useless. the infrastructure that's going to help us yeah. move forward. And it's interesting, you know, I think a lot of people are worried about the incoming administration's relationship to Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. even the auto industry now, particularly as it relates to the infrastructure plan, because, for example, V2V, v, for instance, mm-hmm. really relies heavily on the proper infrastructure. Are you worried at all that there will be a lack of communication that will result in infrastructure that in 10 years will become obsolete because of self-driving cars? Well, you know, I don't I don't know. I think uh, what I can say is I think everybody has an interest in figuring this out. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are moving into a different time with transportation where connectivity can tell us all kinds of things that we we couldn't know before. Um, right. Just on the analytics and data side by itself, we can make a much smarter transportation system if we're smart about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know. I'm always hopeful around this season that, uh, you know, whatever administration's coming into place is doing its best job to serve the American public. And if that's the case, then uh, we'll continue wrestling with these issues. Do you think the focus on the infrastructure plan will take away focus from things like the automated vehicle guidance? No, I think, um, you know, those things are on different paths and they have uh, different people who are fired up about them. So I think, you know, in theory, we can chew and chew gum and walk straight at the same time. So are you, you think you expect progress to continue at the rate that it's continuing? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. You know, that's my, that's my, uh, that's the word of the day is I have a lot of hope. Okay. And so what is the next step for the the vehicle guidance or the self-driving vehicle guidance? Yeah. So we promised to do six months of input, mm-hmm. and we've already been doing roundtables around the country, right. uh, and that will continue um, beyond this administration. We also call for the guidance to be updated annually. Mm-hmm. Um, we debated that, actually, because guidance is good guidance if people can rely on it for a long time, but we figured that it was going to be enough of a break from our traditional way of approaching something like this that right. we needed to to check in and uh, and have an ongoing conversation with right. our stakeholders about it, including safety advocates mm-hmm. and a whole wide range of people. So um, I think annually is, is a good increment yeah. for now. Because and, the industry uh, at this point doesn't even know what they don't know. Right. Exactly. So. Exactly. And, you know, there's some work that the industry is going to have to do mm-hmm. indifferently than they've had to do before. And I'll give you an example of that. Like, imagine you're in an autonomous car and you come to a pothole mm-hmm. and your car notices it, avoids it, and you keep moving. 
Well, can that learning about that particular road condition be shared not only among cars made by the same manufacturer, can that be shared across the board to other autonomous vehicles so that a car that doesn't have that capability can at least learn the lesson? Mm -hmm. So um, in order to get there, government's not going to pound the fist and make the industry do it. Mm -hmm. But we've had good success in our department with the aviation sector where the commercial carriers actually share anonymous data with us right. on uh, you know accidents, near accidents, and we're able to do uh, a root cause and work with industry to ensure that mm-hmm. it doesn't happen again. So I think there's some, some opportunities for the auto industry right. to partner. they're fighting it a little bit. Well, look, they're in a highly competitive business, mm-hmm. and you know what could be a high-level opportunity to enhance all vehicles sometimes yields to competitive pressures. But we think that uh, the auto industry is well-suited to a model that takes a proactive safety culture and Mm -hmm. builds on it. And uh, anonymous data being shared isn't uh, a new thing. It's something that they can do, and we we really think they should. So do you think that the government is prepared as technologies become more and more advanced to, you know, regulate things like if self-driving cars, as AI progresses, for example, is the government prepared to handle that? I think the big difference between today and, let's say, four years ago Mm -hmm. is that we know we need to be ready. And um, we're now thinking about it. We're we're building uh, models like the AV guidance that we've Mm -hmm. been talking about to to be able to wrestle with these questions in a way that we weren't able to do even three years ago. So mm-hmm. I think it's really a more iterative process than, you know, are we ready? Are we not ready? I think it's, are we asking the questions correctly? Are we talking to a wide enough array of people who can give us different perspectives? And then are we taking those learnings and starting to to act on those based on what we know? Yeah. And so if you had to give the current administration a letter grade on on its relationship with Silicon Valley? Because that's something a lot of people are concerned about with the incoming administration. Mm-hmm. What would it be? I think we've done very well. If you're going to pin me down, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what other agencies have, have done or not done, but I, I'd say, you know, it would certainly be in the A range in, in terms of what I, what I know. And what is it? What, what do you know? Well, I just know <laughs> transportation. I don't know like yeah. defense or something. Yeah. Was there one tech company that was, you know, more aggressive, more active that you were communicating with a lot more than others? Actually, no. I mean, you know, there's so much that's going on at any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are there are people like I'll give you an example, uh Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. Um Amazon got really frustrated at the pace of our drone regulations. Oh, interesting. Um and so they were very vocal talking publicly about it, even though we were working like beavers to try to move along our registry, to move along our small UAS rule and mm-hmm. several other things. Did they also communicate with you directly about I think concerns? they were talking to some folks in the mm-hmm. FAA. But, you know, um, the communication uh, with uh, Silicon Valley is often kind of noisy. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, uh, that's because you have people who feel like they've got the best idea and they're mm-hmm. ready to move forward as quickly as possible. And the government is a bit of an obstruction to them. So right. um, on the other hand, I think folks are realizing that, um, you know, if uh, a drone crashes someplace and creates a big problem or an autonomous car uh, gets into an accident, mm-hmm. that there's risk to the entire category. Right. So I think they're starting to recognize 
that there is a role for the federal government to play in uh, laying out the safety markers and creating an environment where people not only have confidence in the technology, Mm -hmm. but they have confidence in the safety regime around it. Right. So what is next for you? Good question. Um, I don't know. (laughs) I, you know, I don't even know what I'm going to have for lunch on inauguration day yet, but, um, you know, I, I've had a ball in this job. It's Mm -hmm. been, uh, it's tested me in almost every way. Um, I feel like we've moved the needle on so many things, important things, but you know, I'm probably looking for, uh, for another place to plant my flag. My biggest problem is that I'm not coming out of this job at 70. I'm coming out of this job at 45. Yeah. So, you know, I don't have the luxury so of just, be boring. yeah, well, <laughs> you will see, we'll see. Maybe I'll find some exciting things yeah. to do. I mean, you know, um, would you, you consider know, a position in tech? Maybe, you know, I think I, I, one thing I've learned about this job and being a mayor is I like to run, run things. Uh, and I, I really like to lead people and set goals and try to attain those goals. You know, I don't know if uh, Jennifer Aniston is looking for a co-star for the next movie, <laughs> but, um, you know, I might be available. Yeah. We'll see. So you would not be looking for something in government again? Not immediately. I, You know, look, I, I've, I've been in public service for 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter is 12, not mm-hmm. coincidentally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've got maybe seven more years with her in the house. And uh, and then she's going to be going off to college. And my 10 my, uh, year old's not far behind her. So, um you know, I've got some uh, some time to uh, spend with them, mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully in a less chaotic way. Right. And uh, but I'm always interested in mission driven work. I'm always interested in trying to translate what I've done in the public sector. And I think there are ways in the private sector that you can do well and do good at the same time. And mm-hmm. I'll be looking for those opportunities. So in tech, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> there I mean, are a lot of like, tech companies that would want you. Well, there, you know, there's. Um, you know, we've done a lot on public-private partnerships. Yeah. You know, uh, and there's a there's a huge world over there. Um, you know, there's uh, you know different you know modes of transportation. And it's just you know I don't know. I, I haven't really thought about it that deeply. Mm-hmm. I just I just know that whatever I'm doing, I'm gonna want to be leading. Yeah. Are you staying in D.C. for now? Um, for now, we certainly want to finish the school year, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know. Uh, my kids have gotten very comfortable here. They've got some new friends, and uh, you know, moving them would be kind of hard. Secretary Foss, it was really great talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thank you so much. And now I'm going to throw it back to Kara Swisher one more time to tell you about where to find more podcasts like this one. Thanks, Johanna. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews we've done with Lyft President John Zimmer, U.S. Secretary of Commerce Penny Pritzker, and White House Senior Advisor Valerie Jarrett, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like The Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then.